0: Hey ladies, welcome back to the show. I am your host, Trisha Stavankiewicz. So as you all know, we are in the middle of our women's health series. And as part of that, I like to talk about um, things that affect women. And today we are going to talk about diabetes. I had been waiting to talk about diabetes until I had somebody that I knew was an expert and could really answer the questions that many of you may have. So let me introduce you to a fellow dietitian, Angela Manderfield. She has been a dietitian for about 20 years. She's a business owner and founder of Outsmart Your Diabetes. She's board certified in advanced diabetes management. She received the Outstanding Dietitian Year Award for in 2018 and holds a master's degree in community nutrition from Southern Illinois University. Angela recently authored a book that you guys can buy titled Outsmart Your Diabetes, a step-by-step guide to reversing diabetes. Angela uses integrative functional nutrition to help clients restore their bodies to optimal health with a focus on food as medicine. She helps them to overcome obstacles with cutting-edge nutrition and lifestyle changes so they can lose weight, stabilize blood sugar, and reclaim the time and energy to live full lives on the least medication possible. Angela coaches, motivates people on life transformation. The end result is a strong body, powerful mind and amazing energy. So before we start, I want to give you Angela's information or social media is you can find her on Instagram at Outsmart Your Diabetes and on Facebook at Healthy Solutions with Angela. So let's take a minute to welcome Angela Manderfield to the show today.
1: Hi, Angela. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. We're really happy to have you here.
2: I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
1: We have so many questions for you. And I know that there's just so many things. So can we start like, and I guess we can kind of drive it however you want it to go, but do you want to talk a little bit about diabetes just in general? I mean, however you want to talk about it, like what it is, who has it, and just kind of the gist of diabetes in general?
2: Yeah. pre-diabetes and diabetes obviously are just becoming so rampant. And I think there's so many contributing factors to that. And I think probably some of the biggest ones that, you know, people always talk about, oh, well people get, you know, they're not eating healthy food or they're not exercising enough. But I think one of the biggest contributors right now, given the way our lifestyles are and what we've been dealing with the past couple of years is stress stress can be so damaging to the gut bacteria. It can seriously impact our hormones, our insulin levels. And I think that it's one of the more overlooked pieces when it comes to prediabetes and diabetes. That's fascinating. So then what happens with stress? So if your body,
1: is it like, I'm guessing then you're talking more about like chronic stress, not just an acute incident. It's, it's chronic stress. What do you think happens with chronic stress that contributes yeah. to prediabetes? diabetes
2: Yeah. I mean, just stress over time. So if we just kind of think about what diabetes is to begin with, so what happens is just kind of a basic rundown. Let's say we sit down and we eat our breakfast, you know, it has carbohydrates, proteins, fats in it. When those carbohydrates get into our stomach, those carbohydrates get broken down into sugar, which is fine. That's normal. That's what's supposed to happen. But then the sugar is in the blood and eventually it needs to get into the cells. And that's where we start to have some insulin signaling problems. So sometimes the sugar's building up in the blood because our cells are being resistant. They're locking up the doors and they're not letting the sugar in. So even though our little pancreas is there pumping, and pumping, and pumping, and insulin like crazy, it just can't do its job because our cells are too resistant to it. And so the stress, that, is that the yeah, stress that causes that? Well, well, the stress can cause that because when your stress levels go, go up, you have higher levels of cortisol. And what's interesting about that is when the cortisol levels go up, not as much insulin is released. And so our blood sugar tends to go up. So we just end up in kind of this bad situation where our hormones are all out of whack. We've got this sugar sitting in the blood. It doesn't know where to go and nobody wants it. <laughs> <laughs> and people end up feeling tired. They end up feeling lethargic. They can't think straight. And all of these things combined, just start taking people down in, in a really, really bad path as far as just how they feel. Because then what happens when like you're stressed, you're overwhelmed, you're tired? What are you going to start drinking? You're probably drinking drinks with caffeine, which again can contribute to that high cortisol level. So it's just a really vicious cycle when it comes to diabetes and stress.
1: Yeah. So what do you do then? Do you deal with the stress first or do you deal with the diabetes? What, what usually
2: happens? So I usually have people deal with the stress first. Cause you know, that's, the main root cause of what's happening here. So even though somebody might have the genetics that you know maybe grandma, grandpa, mom, and dad, everybody's had diabetes, we gotta flip that switch on. And stress is one of those things that can flip that switch on. So I think before we start worrying about, oh, blood sugar, let's throw some medicine at it. What if we looked at, hey, what's causing the majority of the stress in my life? And how can I meter that a little bit? What can I do to manage it? So
1: before we even start, so I didn't even ask this, but so can we first talk about the difference of what is diabetes and what is pre-diabetes? Cause I feel like, I feel like you have people that on um, this podcast that are going to be having that have diabetes that maybe are managed by a medication. And then there might be somebody who has gotten some blood work from their physician that says, Oh, you're in this range that you're pre-diabetes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Cause I'm guessing the intervention might be a little bit different
2: for that. Yeah, so pre diabetes is, you know, if we were just going to look at it from a clinical perspective, you got some labs drawn. If your fasting blood sugar came back between 100 and 125, that's one of the criteria that you would have pre diabetes. And then the other one is there's this test that they do called the hemoglobin A1C test. And this test basically is just telling us how much sugar has been in our blood attaching to our little red blood cells over the past two to three months. And it, it's reported in a percentage. So if, you're, if your A1C comes back between 5.7 and 6.4, that just tells us your overall blood sugar for the past two to three months has been elevated. And that's another criteria that can be used to diagnose prediabetes. Diabetes diagnosis, obviously is just the 126 or higher fasting glucose. And then in A1C, Above 6.4%. And then, if you you know, sometimes people get signs and symptoms of high blood sugar, like excessive urination, excessive thirst. And if any, if they ever get a random check over 200, you know, that's another way to diagnose. But the interesting thing is, is the way you prevent diabetes is the same thing that you do to treat it. Uh, oh, which so, is, what? which is, tell uh, us all about it. Yes. Oh, my gosh. So there's so many things, but can't wait I, I them all. To- Do we have all day? We Um, do. We can talk
1: all day about yeah.
2: (laughs) As far as food goes, so that's usually what people ask me first about is food, and what I tell people to focus on is different than what they think they should be focusing on. So I tell people we need to focus first on fat, and I actually want you to eat it. So I want people eating healthy fats. The reason is because when you eat fat with your meal it slows down the absorption of carbohydrate into the bloodstream, giving the body a little bit better chance to be able to deal with what's coming at it. Where, you know, have you ever eaten like cereal for breakfast? It's just a regular old cereal and milk. Yep. And like an hour later, you're like starving, mm-hmm. right? Yep. yep. Yeah. So that's a very different reaction that your body will get when you add a little fat or some protein to the breakfast. So if you had maybe like hard boiled egg and maybe some avocado and then maybe a bowl of berries. That's a nice balance. We've got a little protein. We've got a little fat. We've got a little fiber and carbohydrate. So it's a little mix of everything. And it usually sticks with people longer. So first thing, definitely eating healthy fats. So I already mentioned like avocado every meal you said, right? Every meal if okay. you can like do okay. your it doesn't have to be large amounts but cooking with olive oil, avocado oil, you know our healthy oils, making sure that we're having some nuts and seeds because those are just packed full of, of vitamins and nutrients, particularly magnesium, which we'll probably talk about in a little while. but healthy fats are super important for helping to manage blood sugar and help people feeling full you know, cause that's important. We want to eat a meal and we want to be good to go for a little while. We don't want to be starving again in an hour. And then the other major thing when it comes to food is fiber. So a lot of people are tempted to go on a severe low carb diet. Oh, they found out they have pre-diabetes or diabetes. So now they're keto or paleo or, or let whatever. Me give up
1: all fruit because I can't have it because it, it- has sugar in it.
2: Bingo. Exactly. So people, they want to give up all of stuff, but it's not necessarily sustainable, nor is it necessarily the right choice because carbohydrates, vegetables are carbohydrates. I think a lot of people overlook that even the non-starchy vegetables like our broccoli, cauliflower, those have carbohydrates in them. So what it comes down to is choosing the high quality and how you determine quality of your carbohydrates is based on the fiber content. The fiber feed that good bacteria, which pretty much regulates everything in our body. So we want to keep those good bacteria flourishing and we want to keep them happy. So between healthy fats and fiber, those are the two biggest things that people can do to prevent diabetes and manage diabetes.
1: Great. That's so fascinating. So then also there must be a connection with like the fiber is also helping your gut bacteria, which is then also helping diabetes. Is that,
2: is that happening too? Yes, absolutely. Like I love to talk about gut bacteria and I will spare you, you know, <laughs> well, it's so details. Fascinating.
1: no, it's so fascinating. And all the research out is like even more fascinating about the connection, but yeah. there's so much information with like disease states and it's just, it's fascinating. I'm right there with you.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think one of the biggest things that I worry about in people who do the low carbohydrate diet is starving their good gut bacteria (laughs) because we're just eating a bunch of proteins and fats. And then, you know, people do have some vegetables, but most of my clients that I talk to that are attempting a keto style diet, they're buying like keto bread, keto snack, like anything in a bag or a box that says keto on it, thinking that they're doing keto. And that's not really the thing. So for anybody who doesn't know what keto is, it's a, it's a style of eating that's been quite popular for the past several years. And it's, you know, super high fat diet which I'm, I'm a, an advocate of in certain situations, but to be perfectly honest, it's not exactly appropriate for every single person. We have to pay attention to our genetic makeup. And there are certain people with certain genetic makeups that actually respond very poorly to a keto style diet and actually do better with vegetarian. And there's some people that actually don't do great with vegetarian and do better with like a Mediterranean. So, you know, I know I'm throwing out all these random diet names, but my main takeaway here is that we are all individuals and we all have different genetic makeups. So to just say, oh, keto is the diet that's going to fix diabetes. Well, I would beg to differ because we're all different and we we need to have different diets. So sorry, got on a tangent there back to the, the, the gut bacteria. If we're too restrictive in carbohydrates, then we restrict the food that that good gut bacteria needs. So It's really important to make sure that we're including like resistant starches. And these are the starches that feed the good bacteria in our stomach. And then those bacteria start to produce these little short chain fatty acids. And one of those happens to be butyrate and butyrate is really important for our overall gut health because it helps to stabilize blood sugar. It helps to lower cholesterol and it just helps to kind of heal the gut and, and keep it intact. So fiber, the takeaway fiber is important. And are the resistant
1: starches part of the whole fiber continuum as well?
2: Yeah. So the resistant starches are just the, the part of the carbohydrates that we eat that don't get broken down. And I think the most surprising thing that people hear is, and I just sent a newsletter this week to my, to my group about this is that rice and potatoes happen to be resistant starches. Now people, I love to bring up potatoes when I do a talk because, oh my gosh, it creates like this. It creates a little bit of fire in people. Like, oh, potatoes are the devil. You can't eat potatoes. Okay. I hear you. I hear you. But maybe French fries aren't the best option to eat on a regular basis. But if you take potatoes and coat them with maybe some olive oil and maybe some grape herbs, spices, and you roast them, the glycemic impact of the potatoes is going to be different because you added that fat to it. Another option is eating potatoes cold. When you have let potatoes or rice sit for 24 hours, like in a refrigerator and they get cold, that increases the resistant starch in them. So even though people don't want to like eat day old cold rice, I get that, (laughs) but Letting it sit does increase the resistant starch, even if you heat it up the next day. So making like a healthy potato salad, that's a good way to incorporate resistant starches into your diet and still be able to eat a little bit of potatoes. Now the amount obviously still makes a difference how often you eat these things, but where there's a will, there's a way. And, you know, sometimes you can figure out a way to, to have some potatoes or have some rice and still get good benefits.
1: I think this this is so fascinating because I feel like what happens with diabetes, you're either like the doctor just tells you, oh, go on keto, right? Or like, it's just so individual. Or like if you have a, a, an elevated hemoglobin, A one c like there's no resource. So you don't really know what to do about it. And then you're just like going on the internet, trying to find information. And there's so much misinformation out there. So that's why I'm so happy that you were able to come on because I know this is your area of expertise and you can debunk a lot of the stuff that's out there that people are avoiding things that they probably don't have to. And it, I mean, and I'm sure it drives you crazy too, that people are on all these restrictive diets that may be more harmful for them in the long run, depending on whatever their makeup is or genetic makeup, and then it's not sustainable. So like, at least now you're talking about things that are individualized, which is why people would work with you and that it's sustainable forever so that it doesn't become like this issue that never gets, because that's what I think happens. It's so complicated that nobody ever really gets to like the root or it just seems so hard. So then there's long-term complications because their diabetes aren't controlled, whether, whether if they're able to work with you, then you're able to kind of nip that and put them in a better place moving forward so that their diabetes can be controlled and then they have less complications. So it's all very fascinating.
2: Yeah, yeah. And you know, I think with, with the doctors, it's not like, I bet you if you talk to a doctor, they don't necessarily think, keto is the end all be all, but you know what? They have like 30 seconds. Yeah. And they need an intervention. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They they tell the patient, well, and keto is what's popular right now. We know it does lower blood sugar a little bit. So you know what, go do keto. And then the patient does it, you know, and maybe they see some good results, but then like you said, it's not for, for some, for some people it is sustainable, but for most it's not people need more realistic approach so that they can see good results for the long-term and reverse the prediabetes or the diabetes. So that is an
1: option of diabetes and prediabetes can be reversed. Absolutely,
2: so prediabetes, hands down, absolutely can be reversed. I use the word reverse slightly cautiously with type two diabetes because I do believe it can be reversed. My mom has type two diabetes and she, her, she reversed hers. So I think that was pretty cool. She had an hemoglobin A1C in the mid sixes. She's okay with me sharing this. And, <laughs> you know, she was able to get her A1C back down to like 5.2%. which is fantastic. So like it can be done, but genetics do play a role. So when I say the word reverse, I don't mean like it disappears forever, never comes back and you can go on with your life. Like you, there are certain things that have to be in place to continue that reversal. And there may come a point when, you know, those little beta cells that live on your pancreas that produce all the insulin, they get tired and maybe they can't produce like they used to. Diabetes is a progressive disease. But I, th- I think the key point is p- that people should know is that, you know, maybe they are on a couple medications for diabetes right now. It is possible to get off of medications. It is possible to use your lifestyle, to use food as medicine, to use movement as medicine and see just as good, if not better results than when you were popping some pills.
1: And so can you talk a little bit about that? I know that you have some secrets and some simple behaviors that kind of help speak to what you're talking about in terms of diabetes and prediabetes.
2: Yeah, totally. So, so in my book, I I talk about the secrets and some of them are just super little basic things. So one of them is snacking and the idea behind snacking is to not do it. (laughs) So no snacking is the secret. (laughs) <laughs> well, because the no snacking is is part of the secret because here here, and let me just some people are gonna get angry about this. it's It's another very controversial topic. But here's the thing. People with diabetes back in the day were told, Oh, you got a snack to keep your blood sugar even, you got a snack to keep your blood sugar up. And some of those people were on insulin at the time. And, and it was different types of insulin than when we have now. So for some reason, that just stuck. And now people do that. And they're, they're just in a snacking state all day. But there's a couple of reasons why that's not ideal. So, number one, if you're snacking all day, are you really getting the opportunity to get hungry? Are you really? getting full? Like when it comes to your meal, are you just eating? Cause it's time to eat or because you actually need food. So I'm a big advocate of mindful eating, like yeah. feeling better when I'm done eating than I did when I started and having hunger trigger me to want to start a meal. So sometimes when people are snacking too often between meals, they're never getting that hunger feeling. So they're never letting their body actually guide them and regulate them saying, hey, I'm hungry. Give me a little food. And wow, I don't have that same gnawing feeling in my stomach anymore. So I'm feeling satisfied. I'm going to go ahead and move on with my day. So that's my main reason behind just a temporary snacking boycott. (laughs) This is just to kind of give your body a chance to give you some of those signs and signals to say, I am hungry or I am full. I've had enough. So I think that one's really important but there are so many secrets. I don't know that we'll even be able to get through all of them today, (laughs) but I would say the second really big one with people is that E word, you know, that E word exercise. (laughs) Mm -hmm. One that nobody wants to do. (laughs) Most people hate it, but I think, yeah, I, I really do think that they hate it because there's this expectation that either I have to put on these clothes, I have to drive to a gym, I have to get all sweaty, you know, No, like
1: not like the daily stuff.
2: Yeah, exactly. 150 minutes of movement a week helps manage diabetes. And that might be like, I don't know, waking up in the morning, walking your dog for 10 minutes. And then when you get home, like dancing in the kitchen while you're making dinner, like I do that all the time, just for fun. I'm not doing it for exercise. I just (laughs) like to dance. So So I think a lot of people have this this preconceived idea of what exercise has to be, but I'll tell you what it has to be. Number one, it has to be fun. And number two, you need to be getting something out of it. And a lot of people do notice when they exercise and they do choose something that's enjoyable or fun, they get more out of it. They feel like, wow, I feel energized from that session, not worn down. And over time, they notice their energy picks up on a regular basis because their blood sugar is more stable. So, and is that what exercise does for your blood sugar? It helps stabilize it. Exactly. So you remember earlier when we were talking about what diabetes is, and we talked about the stubborn cells, not opening up for the insulin to let the sugar in well, exercise is a basically walks in and just rips open the cells and says, Hey, sugar's here. Let them, let it in. So it decreases insulin resistance. That is the most valuable priceless medicine that we have available to manage all of this is our exercise.
1: If you were to take your blood sugar like after you were exercising, what would that be? Would it be like elevated or would it be lower? It would be elevated because you're releasing it into the cells.
2: Well, it depends. Okay. So, if if you go and just do like a general workout, like you just maybe go to the gym and you take a a basic class, like, I don't know, whatever class sounds good to you. Just like a basic, like I teach Zumba. So I always talk about dance and Zumba. So let's say you go take a Zumba class, you go in there, you have some fun, you put some effort in a little bit of sweating. It's just a good class. When you're done, you're probably going to see your blood sugar a bit lower. If you go to a weight class, like maybe it's an anaerobic activity where you're not using a lot of air, you're uh, squeezing, or maybe you do a high intensity cardio classic, maybe a spinning class, or maybe you're doing a race like a 5k or something, those types of events can sometimes cause blood sugar to go up temporarily. And the main reason behind that is because you can get a glucagon and adrenaline, which are, these are hormones. You can get a release of those that can cause a spike in blood sugar while exercising. But in general, exercise is going to have a general lowering effect on the body. Sometimes people also see if they wake up in the morning and don't eat breakfast, if they exercise on an empty stomach, sometimes they'll see a spike with exercise as well for that same reason. Yeah. And so talking about
1: that in like the morning time, what do you think about the whole, we've been talking about like paleo and we talked about keto. What do you think about another fitness trend that I think we see with intermittent fasting? And so I'm guessing that you'll probably have different, it probably depends on if you're taking insulin and there's different things, but what is your, what do you think that does in terms of reduction risk for diabetes or prediabetes?
2: So, most of my patients, I have them do a form of intermittent fasting called time restricted feeding. So, that's, I think that's the form of intermittent fasting that most people are familiar with because most people will talk about doing the 16 and eight, where they don't eat for 16 hours and then they have an eight hour feeding window. I usually start the majority of my clients with like 12 to 13 hour fast. And usually it's mostly while they're sleeping. So, what I'll ask them to do, is I'll say, Hey, eat your dinner. And then after dinner, call it quits, or at least three hours before you go to sleep, no food. And let's try to go 12 to 13 hours and see what happens with your fasting blood sugar. And over time they start to notice, Oh wow, that makes a pretty big impact on my overall blood sugar. Plus when you do that, you actually sleep better. Because when you're not, you know, a lot of people snack on popcorn, they're eating stuff right up until bedtime. And then their stomach's like, oh, I just got dinner cleaned up and now I got to clean up the snack. And so the the stomach has to digest and get all that done. And by the time they're done, then they have to move on. You have to move on to like repairing, rebuilding, doing everything that your body needs to do, especially for immune system while you're sleeping. Like your body is doing a lot of work while you're sleeping. So when it has to digest too. That causes more problems. And sometimes people will see higher blood sugars because they don't sleep as good when they eat right before bed. Now, people will tell you otherwise. They'll say, Oh, no, a snack before bed and I sleep like a baby. Well, maybe you feel like you're sleeping like a baby, but your body inside is like, Hey, I don't like this. It's Um, doing a lot of work. Yeah. It is doing a lot of work overnight. So, I usually tell people eat a good balanced meal. Make sure there's carbohydrates in your dinner so you're not left feeling deprived. Make sure you've got a good source of fat and protein so you have that satiety to help it last. And then once dinner's done, kitchen closed, go do something else, keep yourself busy and let's just see. And, and I tell people like if you're starving, like if you truly are, it's nine o'clock and like your stomach's growling, you need something to eat by all means have, but something small just to get you by but that comes back to that snacking whole snacking thing. But yeah, but I think um alternate day fasting is another one that people will do where they might go a day where they don't eat anything, but maybe like 20 to 25% of their daily caloric needs. So that might end up being somewhere around 250, 300 calories for the day. And then the next day they eat like normal and they may work for diabetes. It can. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When you restrict your food, Even when you just cut down by 25%, which I didn't mention this earlier, but that's another reason if you stop snacking when you have diabetes, you'd probably reduce your daily total of caloric intake by about 25%. And that actually lowers blood sugar, but this is flip-flop what I'm talking about here. Like you're only eating 25% of your caloric needs on that fasting day. And then you eat like normal on the other days. And yes, it can have long-term effects on increasing longevity, but it also does help with insulin resistance and just overall blood sugar control.
1: Now, okay. So that's intermittent fasting and we're talking, what would happen though, if you're on medicine, like you're on insulin or something like that would then it change in terms of what you would recommend? Because again, all of this seems very individualized, which is why they would work with you because everybody's different, right? And their pancreas is different. Everybody's different. So what would you recommend? Would you recommend yeah. that for somebody who is taking insulin, especially if it was a longer acting insulin?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it can work, but I would, I would help them adjust their, their insulin during gotcha. that time. Like, w- you know, cause after a few days of doing it, they might no- start noticing, wow, I'm waking up in the morning and now my blood sugar is in the seventies and I'm not feeling super great. So they would need to decrease the amount of long acting insulin that they're taking. So yeah, the type of insulin that they take makes a difference or the type of medication overall that they take. The ones that people have to be aware of would be insulin for sure. There's a class of medicines called sulfonylureas. They're not, they shouldn't probably be super popular anymore. They're definitely not one of my favorite medicines, but glimepiride, glipizide, gliburide, those are a couple examples of medicines that could possibly drive the blood sugar too low. But a lot of the other medicines on the market right now that are more popular, that are, that are really working and helping people, especially with weight management, most of those don't cause a low blood sugar. So like the GLP1 class, those are the once a week shots that people take that's not insulin. There's the metformin, which is super common medicine for diabetes. That's not going to cause a low blood sugar. I have seen it occasionally in certain people, but it's not, that doesn't typically cause low blood sugars in people. And then there's another class that works on the kidneys, the SGLT2 inhibitors. Their last name ends in "flosin," like empagliflozin, canagliflozin, those don't tend to cause low blood sugars either. So most diabetes medicines now are, are pretty safe in terms of if someone wanted to try some form of restricted feeding or, or intermittent fasting. It wouldn't be. Well, and I guess too, like to your point, like
1: you wouldn't be sucking at the end of the night. So you probably wouldn't need that big dose of insulin. So you would need an adjustment anyway, because it sounds like the pattern of how you were eating would be different, the composition, yeah. and then also the pattern, which would make a difference.
2: Plus, you know, just the benefit of it being it, it helps with insulin resistance. So if you're taking, say, 20 units of uh, long acting insulin and your insulin resistance starts to improve, that means you don't need as much insulin in your body to get your sugar down. So now you have taken just a, a small little thing, like changing the hours in which you eat. And now this has gone on and reduced your need for medication, which that's a huge that's thing. That's amazing. Yeah. It's yeah. Amazing.
1: Now, can you also speak to, which I know this is one of the things that people talk about like in terms of diabetes and reducing the risk or decreasing the risk of, of pre-diabetes going into, or I guess um, becoming diabetes the whole thing with weight loss and the whole like 7% weight loss. Do you, so tell me what you think about that. So in this episode, we try to not focus. We're like you, like we try to focus on mindful eating and hunger fullness cues. So I don't always like to get so hung up on the weight loss. So can you speak a little bit to that?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think like in the studies, that's one of their ways that they measure if something is successful as they look at weight loss. And we do know, like when body weight goes down insulin, you know, the body isn't as insulin resistant. It, it uses things better, but it's definitely not the focus. Like when you start focusing on behaviors, whether than the scale, the scale moving just happens to be a side effect. So like when we work on sleeping better, when we work on moving our body better, when we work on giving ourselves the highest quality food that we can, you know, that's available to us, those behaviors start moving the scale just as a, as a bonus side effect. It's not like every day we get on there and we're talking about restriction and deprivation to get it down so that the blood sugar is better. It's actually these acts that we're doing that improve the blood sugar. And as, as our body starts to improve, it lets go of what we don't need. And awesome. that's how people lose the weight.
1: Yeah, it's amazing because it all ties together. It's, it's the stress. It's the, like, again, like all the things like the self-care, the physical activity, all of that. And it seems like then the end result would be that you're diabetes. Cause that's the thing is like, I've heard people that lose weight, but then their blood sugar numbers or their hemoglobin A1C are still elevated because they're probably not doing the whole approach, right? Like it seems like you need to, the hormones are going to play a big a part in this. And it sounds like the stress is something that. And I'm guessing sleep is something that plays into that as well, right?
2: Oh, you're exactly right. Because the less sleep you get, the less insulin is released because you're have higher cortisol levels. And then it's a vicious cycle because cortisol, that's what wakes us up in the morning. That's supposed to keep us awake. So by the end of the day, if we've had cortisol, like just surging all day long, we feel tired and wired, like we want to go to sleep, but we can't go to sleep. And then. Again, that starts this problem with sleep deprivation. It impacts our hunger hormones, our leptin and our ghrelin. And those, when those get out of whack, then we want to eat more. And then when we eat more, we're putting out more insulin, blood sugar is going higher. And it's just this, it's oh just, my this, gosh. It's this cycle that you it's, can't get out of. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. Exactly. So, so sleep is one of the things too. Well, so I'm so happy that you yeah. mentioned that because it is more based on the behaviors of all the different things, as opposed to like, let me just restrict this one thing. And by the way, by doing that, you're probably reducing the foods, the fiber, the higher fat food items that are going to make it the higher oils and things like that. that are going to actually help diabetes in the long run anyway.
2: Yeah. And sleep is underestimated too. Like when my patients ask, well, what's more important? Should I get my sleep or should I wake up early and exercise? And they're always surprised by my answer. My answer is sleep. You need to sleep. I just did an
1: episode on sleep. So I am like a chronic insomniac, right? So I started doing all this research on sleep. And then I was like, Oh my God. And it's like, it's like devastating the impact that it has. I didn't even. And so I I didn't even think about it, like in terms of what the diabetes risk too. So it's, it's huge.
2: Yeah, definitely.
1: Now, what do you think of all the different sugar alternatives? Because I feel like that's something that people ask me all the time that I am not, you know, a professional that knows as much as you do when it comes to diabetes. So what are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, this is another super controversial topic and I'm happy to share my strong opinion on it. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> so I do not love artificial sweeteners. You know, there were some studies done a while back that says, Hey, even when you have artificial sweeteners, because there's no calories there, anytime the brain senses that something sweet, it's like looking for the calories and then it's causing people to want to eat more. And, you know, so there's that piece and that's, and that's that study. And that information has been out for a while, but I think more recently, We now know that number one, artificial sweeteners can cause a spike post-meal. And number two, they damage the gut bacteria, your poor gut bacteria. We want them to flourish, like not getting enough sleep, too much stress, eating too much sugar. Now, when we try to cut the sugar and we try to you use artificial sweeteners, that's damaging the gut bacteria too. So there's a lot stacked against that gut bacteria and we got to do everything we can to protect it. So I tell my clients stay away from artificial sweeteners. That is not a place that we want to go. And by artificial, you know, like some of them are saccharin, sucralose, the ACE-K. I would say two that are not artificial sweeteners that are okay for now. I always say for now, because the research is constantly changing. <laughs> so I'm not going to tell you, Oh, these are perfectly safe. And these are because, you know, things could change, but with the data that we have for now, monk fruit and stevia leaf extract, we, those don't seem to be having a huge negative impact at this point. So I always like, wait, to what about people- the
1: sugar alcohols? Cause I feel like that's another one oh, that people. Yeah. Talk so about. sugar
2: alcohols, they actually do have some impact on the blood sugar but you know, about half of them that you eat are not completely absorbed. And these can actually be helpful. Like just so like the malatol, for instance, that can actually in- help, help improve the bifidobacteria in the gut. Mm-hmm. We don't have a ton of data on all the different types and how they impact, but at this point, sugar alcohols seem to be okay. The only concern there is like a lot of people will go out and get like a bag of sugar-free candy and be like, oh, it's sugar-free. It's a free for all. And it's not because then you eat the whole bag and now you have diarrhea for a while because it can have a, yeah, it has a laxative effect. So, so that's something to keep in mind. And even like the xylitol, they make that, that gum that you can chew like after a meal, it helps prevent cavities. So, you know, I think that's promising as far as sugar alcohols go. So just, you know, pay attention. I think all in all, it comes down to, if you're going to use monk fruit, stevia, sugar alcohols, moderation, which I hate that word to be honest, but just go easy on it. It doesn't have to be something you're doing in large quantities every day. Like we even know you eat too many carrots, you turn orange, right? And carrots are a good thing, but you know, there can be too much of, of a good thing. So just kind of keep that in mind.
1: What about the erythritol? Cause don't people, I feel like people use that with the intermittent fasting. That is the same thing just in moderation. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Any of those words ending in the, The, ol, like the mannitol, sorbitol, xylitol, erythritol. Yeah. Those are all different types of sugar alcohols.
1: And then what about if somebody has diabetes, like takes medicine for it? Would you also tell them that they can have like the monk fruit and the stevia? They would be the two things and not to do like the saccharin and the, the acesulfame K and all that kind of stuff. And the super list you would say to, to, to yeah not in, those. anybody
2: yeah. and everybody, I have that opinion, whether someone has diabetes or not okay. stay away from the artificial stuff, use the, the more, whatever we would say, natural, like the monk fruit stevia and in moderation sugar, alcohols in moderation. But remember like sugar begets sugar, you know, the the more sugary, sweet stuff we eat, the more sugary, sweet stuff we want. So just kind of keep that in mind.
1: And then what about, I feel like I get a lot of questions now about this, these continuous, and I know I've kept you for so long, so I'm going to try to wrap it up for you, but the continuous glucose monitoring. So I feel like that's something that everybody's doing now. These, these like devices that can help kind of see what your blood sugar is. What are your thoughts about them for somebody who has prediabetes or diabetes?
2: Yes. I'm obsessed with them. I love you? to see the
1: data. I love it. But, I know, but how I, do
2: you get them? And
1: then what do you do? So what is your thoughts about all that?
2: Okay. So let's, let's first start with pre-diabetes. Cause I do have a slightly different opinion. So pre-diabetes, you know, if someone's blood sugar is not that high, their, their data is not going to be that exciting. What's not that high. Yeah. So normal, somebody who doesn't have diabetes, most of the time, their blood sugar is probably going to be under hundred. You know, it might have a little yeah. blip here on there on the screen, So that's why I think it's kind of silly when someone who doesn't have diabetes at all puts one of these on because it's not, it's very uneventful for for lack of a better word, but pre-diabetes. So when someone has pre-diabetes and we're starting to see some issues with blood sugar, it can be a useful tool. It really, really can be. But I will tell you, I have had some people with pre-diabetes get a little obsessed with it. Like it starts leading them down a path of restriction and deprivation. So I think if you slap one on and you can just kind of look at the big picture, like observe, like, wow, I'm just collecting some information. Wow, that's very interesting what happened here. It can be a very educational experience. Like for instance, I remember during like election time, I had a client, she had prediabetes and she was wearing one and she was watching one of the debates. And her blood sugar spiked at least 50 <laughs> points Oh during God. a debate, like it just from stress, oh, the stress, from stress, things. it hmm. was stress. Yeah. She hadn't eaten anything. So it was like, Whoa, that was interesting. So like that was good for her to know and good for her to see, but I don't have people with pure diabetes continue it forever. We'll pop one on for two weeks, have them, we'll collect some data, take away some key points. And then, you know what? You don't put it back on. You get on with your life. If you want to do it a couple times a year or every year, whatever Fine, but people with pre-diabetes, I don't feel like they need it. Now, if if they want to get one, which I think doing a trial is not a problem, sometimes their doctor can just give them one for a free trial, or the doctor could give them a prescription. They can use their phone as like the scanner. Like you don't have to buy one of those little readers to go with it. There's an app you can put on your phone. So all you need are the sensors, and your doctor can either give you a sample sensor or they could write a prescription for you to go buy one from the pharmacy because insurance is not going to cover it for pre-diabetes. Type yeah. two, however, hands down, one of the best things anybody with type two diabetes could get is a continuous glucose monitor. It is absolutely crucial that when you have type two diabetes, especially if you're trying to, diverse, to reverse it, that you know what's going on. And doing these little finger sticks, it's fine. But that's like going on this most amazing vacation And just taking like two pictures a day and then wanting someone to see the place that you just went, you know, you get a lot more when you show up with a video camera and you can just say, look at this place, this is so cool versus a couple pics for the day. So that's exactly how I look at a continuous glucose monitor. It shows us the entire picture rather than just a couple snapshots. And it can really help people fine tune their food. But I think the the biggest thing behind it is it creates a why. They eat their favorite food. Maybe they love to eat a plate of pasta with some breadsticks or something and they eat it and they're so full and they look at their blood sugar after and they see that it's 200. That's a big enough why, like I could say to someone, Hey, pasta and bread all at the same meal at the same time can make your blood sugar go too high. You probably want to avoid that. But when you see it, when it's your numbers and you see what your, how your body just responded, that is the best education you can ever get. And it's not like a, oh, see, I told you so sort of a thing. I tell people test it, like go eat certain things and see how your body responds to the food that you eat because there's no better way to motivate a change in behavior than to really see what is going on. Right. And then it gives information about that food, which is particular to you. And
1: then you're right. Like, I feel like, you know, we're all trying to do the motivational, like we all know what to do, right? Most people do. So it's just like, what's the thing that prevents you from doing or doing what you need to do? And that's, it's right. It gives you the data that you're looking for to make that behavior. Yeah. Change.
2: Well, and, and then they have the control. Like, it's not like, oh, I can never have spaghetti or breadsticks again. It's like, okay, I'm going to try this again, but I'm going to try a smaller amount. Maybe I'm going to have some chicken with it. Like I'm going to have some broccoli with it and still have some spaghetti and I'm going to see, does my body respond differently to this?
1: Well, right. Um, That's much more doable though, for the for the rest of your life, as opposed to just restricting it and never having it again. Exactly. So you recommend them. And then what yeah. app do you use? What is the app that you're talking about?
2: So I would say that probably the most accessible, and I hate to like name products, but this is the one that I think is the most accessible to patients is the free, the Libre, the right. freestyle Libre yeah. brand, because you just put that on your phone and then you just scan it. It's super, super simple. And it's affordable. Like if you have to pay out of pocket, it's probably, I don't know, 50 bucks. That probably depends on which pharmacy and where you live, but maybe 50 bucks a sensor. So, and the sensors will last two weeks at
1: this point. Which is nice. Yeah. So happy that you clarify that because I keep seeing the different things for people who don't have diabetes that are wearing the continuous glucose monitor. And I was wondering the same thing, like, is there a benefit in that? But like you said, like, it sounds like, what's the point? Like, there's probably not so much data. Right, unless I guess it's not looking-
2: so much data, and you can really feel like you can listen to your body. You don't necessarily have to see it in I I don't. I mean, that's my opinion. Other yeah. people might ha- have different opinions, and that's fine. But I don't see as big of a use for it when someone doesn't have some sort of blood sugar issue. Well, Angela, you have just
1: been a font of knowledge, and I, I we just appreciate you so much. So, can you tell us where people can find you?
2: Yeah. So my website is outsmart and I've got a lot of information on there, some articles and some blogs on some of the topics that we've talked about today. And I, as you mentioned before, I've got a book that's Out outsmart your diabetes, a step-by-step guide to reversing type two diabetes. And that's available on Amazon.
1: And then you also will have intermittent, I guess you also have some blood sugar challenges, P blood sugar challenges as well. Right.
2: Yeah. So I have a 30 day lower your blood sugar challenge. And every day I send somebody an email. Sometimes there's some little videos in there, but an email of, Hey, take this step today. This is an actionable step that you can do today to get your blood sugar down. And by the end of the 30 days, people usually feel better. They, some have had a side effect of of weight loss, but more importantly, their energy levels up. They feel like they have better control of their, their blood sugars and they just feel better overall.
1: Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge. We really appreciate it. And we will head on over to your site to get all of that information that you have.
2: Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. You are so smart.
0: Wasn't that great? Thank you so much, Angela, for coming on the show as a review. Some of the things we talked about with Angela were she gave us two secrets to help with diabetes management we talked about stress and the effect of diabetes, as well as sleep and its impact on diabetes. We talked about exercise and what that does when it comes to diabetes management. We talked about intermittent fasting. We talked about sugar alternatives that Angela felt would be the most beneficial if you're somebody with diabetes. We talked about resistant starches. And then lastly, we spent some time talking about continuous glucose monitoring devices and how helpful she felt that they were. So you can find Angela on Instagram at Outsmart Your Diabetes and on Facebook at Healthy Solutions with Angela. As a reminder, you can also purchase Angela's book on Amazon and her book is titled, Outsmart Your Diabetes, a step-by-step guide to reversing diabetes with Angela Vanderfield. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you guys have a great week. I'll see you guys back here next week.